Hi, everyone. David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy today's show. Before we begin, just a quick word on how you can access the rest of our essential journalism on Foresight Climate and Energy. If you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and the rest of Foresight, join our global community by becoming a member. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our new website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightmedia.com to find out more. Hello and welcome back to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy that shines a light on the energy transition. My name is David Weston and with me today to help shine that light are two of the brightest minds within decarbonisation, Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, how are you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's great to be back and thanks for the nice intro. Happy New Year. No, really good to be back uh, and thinking ahead what is going to happen in 2024. Um, hopefully, it's not going to be quite as busy as 2023. I'm sure we'll find a way to keep you busy, Jan. Uh, <laughs> in this special podcast to kick off 2024, we're joined by Foresight's policy editor and host of the Policy Dispatch podcast, Sam Morgan. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on here. I'm absolutely thrilled to extend the Foresight Cinematic Podcast universe. Join you on here. Uh, right? You know, I obviously listen to all the podcasts as well because I like to steal your best ideas and put them into my ones. But uh, I'm uh, glad to be here to join you and um, talk about what's coming up. I don't know whether we will have a slightly less busy 2024 Yan. I fear that it's going to be the complete opposite. But um, anything to keep the discussion going, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about uh, on the podcast. Um, so before we look forward then to the next 12 months or so, uh, and what will be a busy 12 months, I'm sure, uh, let's have a quick recap of 2023. Uh, how do you feel? Uh, maybe Sam, let's begin with you. How do you feel 2023 measured up uh, in terms of the energy transition and, and progress made? I think there was a I mean, there was a hell of a lot went on, basically. And it was a year where, as a journalist, I realized that I am completely incapable of keeping track of all of it, which is why um, I actually think that like podcasts like this are actually great because it actually gives listeners and the people that we're actually writing our articles for a lot of you know, um, opportunities to keep track of all these loads of issues. But aside from that, um, I mean, because I've always followed European Union policies quite a lot, um, and that was really a key year, I think, to get all of this legislation that we talk about all the time actually on the books and into law. And that actually sets up 2024 as this year of there isn't a lot of lack of clarity anymore. We actually have all of these targets and benchmarks and standards. You know, maybe people don't like them or maybe they aren't as ambitious or clear as they could have been. But I think we're moving into this period now where there are no excuses regulatory or legislatively wise, which will make, I think, our job as journalists, Dave, actually different because it will be more about what are people doing to implement these laws and things. So I find that really interesting that we are moving 
you know, I think writing about the EU for so long, I did find myself writing the same article over and over again, just slightly changing different dates and everything. But I feel like now there will be a difference um, and that will kind of quell any sort of uh, climate anxiety or maybe, uh, you know, brewing depression over the fact that nothing ever changes a little bit, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how I saw 2023 in broad brushstrokes anyway. I mean, it was quite a year. I mean, what happened only on energy and climate this year, the decisions that were taken, I mean, remember this check pullover, we will have as many <laughs> as many ministerials as we need. And then also the program of the Spanish president towards the end, all the, the files that were wrapped up, it's, it's really not only as a journalist, but it's impossible to keep up. So I would, I, we are still digesting everything, but I would say, I mean, I don't think that people have understood just how ambitious it, the reform of the climate policy framework actually is and what it means, uh, you know, extending the price into the areas where it hurts to people, but also like, you know, that we can already see at the end uh, the point at which theoretic, you know, the there will be no allowances anymore, right? I mean, this is now, we are this is a new phase in a way. This is really, um, uh, but on the other hand, on the, I feel on the energy side, you really have, you, ha you have seen how difficult implementation is. Um, and this, despite the fact that, you know, basically every four weeks there was another climate related, you know, heat wave or flood, or it was the hottest year and you saw, you know, the oceans uh, temperature. So this was there, but the discourse was detached from that. So um, I think that was, and, and then maybe to end, I think in a way, so formally also with the COP, I think it was the year that it was said explicitly that we have to transition away from fossil fuels. I remember, for example, von der Leyen, she said um, in one of her speeches at the, in, 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 I think it was this Beyond Growth events, that the fossil-based growth is done, right? And I, I was quite surprised to hear that, right, from the commission's president in a way. And uh, even they were struggling a lot to find the wording, but they kind of said that in a COP for the first time. So for me, that's also 2023 was the year where we said that. Now we have to find out how to do it and to quote Juncker to also get reelected when doing it, right? So, but it was quite a year. Yeah, it felt like a roller coaster to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and yeah, lots of positives, but also um, some uh, unexpected setbacks, I think for the transition, we're going to talk about that, I think a bit more later uh, on the podcast. Um, but really, um, I think looking back, what, what has happened last year was a complete revamp of European energy and climate policy. Um, and I think just now we're starting to wake up to what that all means and how we're going to implement that. Uh, and 2024 will be interesting in that regard, because it's not the big political announcements. It's really about what we do with the announcements that have been made in 2023. And, you know, will people go along with that? I think that's the big question that's on my mind. Absolutely. We've already seen a lot of uh, changes happening across across Europe, but across the world as uh, as well. Um, one of the big changes I know that we we've highlighted uh, is the sort of shift of political discourse in Germany 
how do you feel as a, as a major player, both in Europe but also on the on the world stage, specifically when it comes to energy? How has the changes that we've seen in Germany over the last sort of twelve months uh, affected or damaged the energy transition? You want to go first? Ah, I was hoping you would take this one, Michaela. Um, well, let me let me attempt to answer this question because I think it's it's a it's a difficult question um, to answer actually. Um, so let's just recap what happened in Germany. So we've seen um, a, a number of backlashes against, uh, I think. German energy and climate policy. Some of those backlashes were coming from within the government, which is quite interesting in and of itself. Um, but some of it also came from the court ruling um, that happened very recently, I think in November uh, last year, which prevented the German government from using, I think it's 60 billion euros of the energy and climate uh, transition fund uh, to be to be put to use. Um, uh, and, and that's causing some real practical problems. Uh, but I think then there's also the sort of political discourse around energy and climate in Germany, which has become, uh, I would even say, quite toxic in a way, a bit of a culture war rhetoric, similar to what we've seen, I think, more in the US context, perhaps before, um, which is interesting in and of itself. And you know, just more recently, we've seen uh, I think calls for general strikes in Germany, and some of it is around uh, agricultural policy, but it's also quite linked to energy and climate um, policies that are currently um, you know, sort of in in the works and will come into force. So there's a whole lot of things going on there, and they're quite difficult to disentangle. But clearly, politically, very very challenging indeed, and I think more challenging perhaps then at least I and many other people um, would have thought this this would turn out to be. Yeah, I mean, if I may add, yeah, yeah, indeed, there's a toxicity in the discussion that, yeah, like, for example, recently, I don't know, just over Christmas, when the minister was coming back from his holiday, he was greeted by some aggressive farmers. I mean, it is a bit, it's not something we are necessarily used to in, in Germany in terms of debate, but I... I think if uh, it has just shown that um, the way forward now is that uh, um, you have to really be always aware of the distributional and also competitive effects of climate policy. And you cannot no longer lead it only as an academic discourse. I think that's for me the main lesson that it, uh, it, it, it matters a lot how you talk about those ideas, but it, it, it's, it, it's, I don't say that I know how to talk about, but uh, I think that that would be the, the way to go. Um, and yeah. is it, is it the, is it the climate crisis that's uh, causing this um, fractiousness? Are, are people, uh, are people worried about the slow progress or are they resistant to change? What's, to uh, in, a, in a climate and an energy transition context. Uh, is that what's sparking this discourse? I think so, definitely. I mean, I think it was yesterday or today, um, one of the main protesters the, from the agricultural lobby, you know, came out and said, we want the status quo. We don't want change. Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing a shift almost now from that being the, you know, the unwritten, the unsaid thing that isn't said out loud to people just saying, no, I don't want to change. I don't want to sacrifice my, my lifestyle. I don't want to acknowledge the fact that I'm part of the, you know, upper 5% of global polluters 
that do 60% of the polluting. You know, I, I think it's becoming, I think obviously climate is one of the parts of society where you will see people not wanting to make changes to their lifestyle for societal good. Mm. And I think that is and becoming more important. agenda, this lifestyle, my freedom agenda has been has been reaped quite cleverly by conservatives, right? That basically, you know, the heat pump was a threat to your freedom, <laughs> but you weren't exactly free to choose the gas boiler before either, but it's an odd discourse where somehow we need to catch up still, right? Mm. So it's kind of my freedom. I think there's another layer uh, as well. Yeah, we had several crises, didn't we, with covid yeah. Um, with the um, war on Ukraine uh, and the energy yeah. price spikes. And then on top of that, uh, you know, having quite ambitious climate policies, which for the first time, I think, really touched people in their personal life much more than they might have done before. You know, most of the emission reduction achieved so far really was achieved far away from people's homes and businesses, yeah. you know, upstream in the yeah. power sector, you know, things like wind farms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe some rooftop solar, but the interventions yeah. were kind of far, quite far removed. And I think suddenly we have a debate about you know, your heating system or your car. Um, and that really made a big difference, I think, to how it was perceived. So I think it's, it's, it's a complicated and um, messy combination of factors um, that makes this really, really hard, I think, to cut through. Um, but uh, there's some important lessons, I think, that can be learned. Um, and interestingly, the German example is 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 observed not just in Germany, of course. It's also being looked at quite yeah. closely in UK politics. Um, uh, even though the UK is not even in the European Union anymore, but it has been looked at by the journalists in the UK, by the politicians, as as a case study um, how things could maybe go wrong. Um, so it's quite interesting, I think, to watch the spillover effects also going into 2024. Yeah, Jan, you mentioned the, the constitutional court ruling last year, yeah. and I think that the the scope and you know the knock on effect of that is probably still only being felt. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I think that legal rulings and the role of courts in climate and the energy transition, I think, is only going to become more marked, especially this year and the year after. Whether or not that's NGOs and climate groups bringing class actions against yeah. governments, which we've seen before, but you know, I think there will be more of that. Um, but also cities about clean air rules. And, and I think also the other side of the coin where people who are against the systemic changes that we need will be taking legal recourse to try and stop that. So I think that this legal element of climate yeah. action and energy transition is going to become, is going to make it even more complicated because you will start having the timeline being pushed out even further with appeals and cases that drag on forever, whether or not it's the ECJ or, you know, district courts or whatever. So I think that that added complexity will be even more pronounced this year, perhaps. I think so too, I would agree. I think there's actually one imminent also in Germany on the not meeting of the uh, reduction in transport and buildings with a court, a regional court, definitely. Um, another thing I think what um, also a bit linked to this uh, constitutional court judgment um, uh, is the missing money for green, right? And uh, that also has relevance for the EU level. And I think what what was decided really in the last days before Christmas around the not full reform of the fiscal rules um, surprised me as well, I have to say, that that was what was settled on, right? Um, 
because uh, uh, I would have hoped for a bit more. You know, there was for a long time this kind of exempting green investment discussions. And in the end, they just settled to reinstate the old rules, which would oblige especially uh, the southern countries and Belgium, who actually account for a big chunk of the EU GHG emissions to adopt fiscal, and I think my, my colleague calculated that it's 40% of the GHG emissions are with these countries that have, that struggle with the debt and deficit rules, right? So it's not necessarily the old West to, it's, 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 it's the old member states partly who don't have also so much money from EU funds that will struggle and that will, I mean, there's no magic in this, right? I mean, uh, if you have to reduce debt and deficits, you have to raise taxes somewhere or you have to cut investments. Um, and so that a bit, uh, you know, Germany has, feels it itself on its own. But I think there was a, a big decision also taken uh, uh, at the end of last year, which I think we'll have to digest in 2024 because... Uh, there's not sufficient money to, to, to these investments and uh, new priorities have popped up around defense, which are, you know, which are understandable. Um, but there's a money issue, right? It feels quite fragile, doesn't it? On the one hand, we have those quite bold and ambitious political yeah. commitments uh, and also the statement at COP um, that was made. Yeah. Um, and it, on the other hand, it feels fragile. Yeah? It feels politically challenging, difficult. There's lots of hurdles and obstacles. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, whether the ambition would ultimately trump uh, that fragility and and work its way through the political system. Uh, and yes, there will be some bumps in the road, but we, we end up actually meeting some of that uh, commitment or will it derail it completely? Um, uh, I, I think the jury on that one is still out. Yeah. I mean, take an example. Uh, I remember about a year ago, von der Leyen went to Davos and announced the big clean tech response to IRA, right? Uh, um, and attached to, and then they came out with this net zero industry proposal, uh, which is still ongoing, actually. One of the things that will drag on into the next year. And, uh, Attached to it also some funding, not a lot, but there was some new funding that's not going anywhere, right? So you see how difficult it is at the moment because there's just so much going on, right? But not even that IRA threat of this massive two times bigger economy could somehow bring a bit of new money on the table. That's what I mean. I was surprised to see that at the end of last year develop in the way it developed. Do we see similar um, what's happening in Germany spilling out to other uh, other countries as well off the back of off the back of the elections? Obviously, Germany had its big elections in twenty twenty one twenty two. Last year, we had the Dutch elections, uh, which went one way, but we also had the Polish elections, which went the other way uh, towards maybe a, a more uh, climate friendly government. Uh, how do you see those elections playing out? Uh, firstly, and then we can get on to uh, 2024, which is the year of the national election. It does make you wonder whether or not all of these kind of checks and balances that the European Union especially has put in place, more of the money kind of side, you know, there are these hundreds of billions of euros in COVID recovery money that are linked to reaching certain benchmarks on, you know, decarbonization or whatever, rule of law, maybe. Um, maybe. <laughs> whether or not these elections don't really 
these governments aren't going to be able to do much because they do have the money issue to think about. Like you said, Michaela, there isn't any money elsewhere. So if you want your tens of billions of euros, as Mr. Orban has you know, fought so hard to get last month, <laughs> they won't be able to do things like, you know, Kirk Vild is saying he's going to take the Netherlands out of the Paris Agreement and give farmers hundreds of billions of euros and tear down wind farms. You know, it's all, it's all bullshit in a way. You know, they don't have the free reign of a Donald Trump or a Javier Malay to set fire to things. They they can talk about it. They can bluster. I mean, see, you yeah. know, Georgia Maloney in Italy, you know, they, the, she was the worst thing that was ever going to happen, fascist, blah, 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 blah. But she actually isn't, right? No, yeah. not a lot has <laughs> happened since she was elected. Obviously, you know, there, there are other factors at play, but, and things could be better with a more progressive government in terms of, mm-hmm. of decarbonization policies. But there is this sort of glass ceiling that they bump against in terms of, you know, ripping stuff down and halting the energy transition. Maybe it won't go as quickly as it could under a different mm-hmm. government, but this is the optimist in me speaking, I think, rather than the the dire pessimist. But I think within Europe, hopefully these elections won't have a catastrophic impact. It, I mean, they will have a good impact, like you said, from Poland. You know, Donald Tusk is far more just transition-minded than Mateusz Morawiecki, for example. Um so I think it's a question of fine margins rather than, oh my God, this has happened. What do we do about it? I think the the impact though is that um, you know, some of the national more innovative policies that we need to work in the future, where we kind of we saw the German case for the heat law as a bit like a test bed, right? This is a big economy trying to do this, mm. and it, it it didn't fail, but it really um, was mm. watered down quite a lot, and 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 the German government really struggled. Um, so I think that is uh, still going to be important. I mean, having the EU goals, targets, frameworks still in place, um, it's that's great. But if if national governments are not able to invent and implement policy that can actually scale up emission mm-hmm. reduction in new sectors, it would be very hard to meet those EU goals. Um, so I think there is a risk. Um, it, the risk isn't so much that we will dismantle the entire energy and climate um, policy framework at the European level, but it's really yeah. um, that member states um, might not make enough progress um, now to then meet those goals later. Uh, I mean, we've seen the elections also in uh, in the Netherlands, haven't we, where um, we now have a new government um, with uh, some uh, aims that certainly are very counter to what uh, has been agreed before and huge question marks to what extent that they will follow through on that. And I agree, Sam, I think on many of those, they can't. Just legally, it's impossible for them to do that. Uh, but there will be areas where they can just go a lot slower or maybe not make any progress exactly. at all. So, And I think that is a risk. Um, so uh, hopefully we're going to see some positive examples for constructive energy and climate policy that actually achieves um, uh, the the outcomes that we need to see to meet those, um, I think, now very ambitious European goals. Which which elections in 2024 are more important, the European ones or the US? One's a lot more easy to predict, maybe, the outcome, I think. But, uh, <laughs> it goes back to the, the court point that we were talking about with the US, I think. I don't think anyone would uh, put a serious amount of money on an outcome at the moment because you just don't know who's even going to be on the ballot, maybe. But uh, I mean, it's it's huge, right? I mean, this is, is it something like 50% of the globe is going to vote or something like that in 2024? Some ridiculous number of people. 
Hi everyone, David here again. Thank you for tuning in to Foresight Climate and Energy. Remember, your engagement shapes our content. So share your thoughts and keep the conversation going on our new website and app. Not a member yet? You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29. Go to foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. Yeah, I I saw a a, a graph from Bloomberg who said, uh, so yeah, 2024 elections, number of countries, 40 countries have national elections next year. And I don't think that includes, so I don't think that includes the European Parliament elections, uh, which is a 21% share of the global population. Uh, or 21% share of the number of countries, sorry. Uh, global population, number of people voting next year is 3.2 billion. Uh, so it's 41% of the global population. Uh, and GDP, wow. 44.2 trillion of GDP um, in markets that are, have elections next year, which is 42% of the global uh, share. So a really big year when it comes to elections and uh, and its impact on, on finding the funding uh, and the number of people it affects. And I say I don't think that I don't think that graph included uh, European Parliament elections. Huge. Um, so that's a really big, um, uh, a big year for on a, on a political side. Obviously, yes, we mentioned the European Parliament elections happening uh, in uh, late spring. Is it Sam? Um, June, then, yeah. early June, June, early June. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the United States by the end of this year. Uh, a few others that I might mention. There's uh, Russia elections for what they're worth, uh, Indian elections, South African elections, uh, elections in Taiwan, uh, which obviously will have a, a major implication there with, with China, uh, Mexico elections, again, uh, implications there from probably with the US. Uh, and then at some point, probably in 2024, there's the UK elections. Uh, it's expected, I think the latest it has to be is January 2025, uh, but they won't want to campaign over Christmas. They don't have a date yet, right? They don't have a date yet. Say so the, the fixed term act means it has to be held by 20, early 2025. Um, but Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, indicated that it would be in the second half of 2024, uh, late last week, I think he said, or over the weekend. Um, So any time between now and the end of the year, it could be called. So some really interesting ideas uh, and really interesting conversations. I would love to hear some, a little bit, some knowledge and wisdom around the European elections. Oh, well, I, if I only I, I had some. I don't put you too much <laughs> on the spot, but... Uh, we get into the crystal ball I, a bit I early. assume it was the one you referred to as more easy to well, yeah. predict, right? Yeah. Um, easier, should have said. Easier, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see who becomes commission president at the end of the elections. The, the parliament stuff doesn't interest me personally too much. I will be able to vote in it for the first time in... 10 years, which is nice. Oh, mazel being, being uh-huh. disenfranchised. <laughs> um, but I think whoever becomes head of the commission, will it be von der Leyen? Will there be continuity? Yeah. Um, will definitely, I mean, it will be definitive on what kind of things we'll be talking about at the end of the year. I mean, especially like the 2040 target for climate reduction. I think that is going to be very implicitly linked to, yeah. you know, because when they came out with like the 2050 target, that's the big thing that kind of, bled into global policy making as well. That yeah. was very much, this is what we're going to do. There, there weren't many options for that, but I think with 2040, there will be a lot it's of options closer. on the table, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. will then have a big effect on the elections. You know, do you want this? Do you want that? Or do you want this thing? So I think if we're talking about the climate sort of implications of what's going to happen in June, it's going to be a lot more um, 
relevant, I think, this time around than it was in 2019. Because I think climate and energy has really forced its way into mainstream thinking now compared to five yeah, years ago. Yeah, but the, the environment is very different also to 2019, yes. no? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so it's discussed very differently. One of the uh, things I noted is that the parliament that used to be in the past, often in negotiations, uh, more ambitious, more progressive, often than the commission and certainly than the member states, mm-hmm. you're pushing for higher targets, um, f- yeah. you know, policy that would move faster. Actually, this this time around in 2023, uh, the parliament already played a, quite a different role in a num- on a number of files. You know, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, for example, the discussion yeah. about the phase out of the internal combustion engine. We often saw the commission kind of being the most ambitious voice in the room uh, and then the parliament uh, pushing back. Um, and in some yeah. cases, uh, actually being, being perhaps the least ambitious voice. Uh, and that could change, of course, also with um, maybe a, a shift um, towards more populist forces in Parliament next year, uh, this year, um, and that will make it more difficult. Um, uh, luckily, we have a new package that's been agreed now and that will remain in place for some time. But I could certainly see any any recasts of directives could be quite hard to negotiate. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. That's true. I've Probably it's the first time we've seen this, that the Parliament actually was putting the brakes even more than the member states on some files, yeah. Hmm. Is, um, is is continuity in terms of the energy transition within Europe? Is is continuity off the back of these elections the best we can hope for? Another von der Leyen term, same people in place, similar sort of maybe parliamentary makeup. I think so. I think that yeah, I think so. Too. That's the the best yeah. best outcome you can you can hope for. I yeah. think because I mean, like Jan said, I don't think there's much danger of of things being undone or unpicked. Um, but that continuity would at least perhaps mean there's a chance of a little bit of ratcheting up of different things. You know, when the commission does have to do a review of something in 2026 or 2027, whether or not it's engine standards or, you know, renewable energy and that kind of thing, you don't want them suddenly saying, well, we've done another cost benefit analysis and actually, you know, this is costing us a lot of money. So we should change it to make it, you know, voluntary instead of mandatory or, or something like that. Um, I think those would be the risks of a more, you know, populism-focused administration, whether or not it's the mm. commission and the parliament, you know, with their, with their co-roles in certain things. But, um, but, yeah, but I mean, also the makeup of, like, the European Council as well, whether or not the council of uh, yeah. national governments will exactly exert even more pressure this time and, and it will be more about their national interests because there has been that kind of tilt as well. Um yeah. Well, you do have and it didn't of, help that the Germans and French yeah. don't get along in that setup. I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. For I guess the question is well, picking up on what some was said, both personnel but also continuity. I think the question will be: Okay, can you just continue a little bit with you know gradual, you know? Con- continuing the program, maybe the Green Deal gets a new name. Maybe you, you know, you emphasize a bit more competitiveness or something. But, but in essence, you can continue, or you cannot even do that anymore because of new majorities, right? And I mean, and even without the new majorities, I think the lesson I take from the Green Deal is um, it gets really tough 
when there is no business case and where basically it's about um, stopping certain harmful practices, right? Not nature restoration law, the pesticides which are stuck. So there you run into trouble. You have no one who speaks out for it and there's no business case. And so that we didn't even manage to do this time around, right? So there, yeah, there I see, I see challenges. Huh? Do you predict the energy transition and energy issues being high on the agenda when it comes to uh, polling days and electoral issues? Or do you think, obviously, there's the economy and there's other geopolitical issues. Uh, we've still got the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Israel, yeah. Gaza, many other conflicts happening around the world. And so is air security, just pure security, going to be a higher, uh, higher issue uh, for the electorate? And does that mean if clean energy and the energy transition maybe plays a, a slightly less of a role, does that mean continuity is more likely because everyone's more interested in talking about other things and they're not going to touch what's already happening? I think they're going to play a very significant role. Um, you, you already see that in uh, you, some of the announcements made uh, in anticipation of elections. You know, an example would be the statement of the British Prime Minister in October, which would, was again covered very widely across the world, not just in the UK, where he said that the UK government was rolling back some of the measures for net zero. Um, you know, we, I think we talked about the substance of those announcements in a different episode, um, but the, sim the, the symbolic value that they saw in making that statement, uh, I think, cannot be underestimated. And we see also, you know, we talked about the protests by farmers in Germany right now. Yeah, this is this is not a, a side issue. Um, uh, environment, energy, climate um, are going to be, I think, very very major issues, and they're, they're of course intrinsically linked to everything that's going on uh, around the world. Um, you know, the, the the price of oil and gas uh, is is still um, you know at levels that are quite different to where we were back in 2019, perhaps. Um, so I, th I think this is going to continue to play a very major role. The interesting question is, to what extent will energy become a culture war issue in the elections? Yeah, exactly. I think some political parties um, want that to be a culture war issue and are trying to, to make it um, a dividing line. Um, to what extent that is going to succeed, I think, remains to be seen. No, absolutely. The point on the culture war is exactly right, Jan. I think a lot of political parties would love you know, heat pumps are of the devil and they don't work in winter and, the, you know, the Greens want you to not be able to drive your car in city centres everywhere. You know, these are the kind of talking points that... Um, not eat meat, not Sam. Eat don't meat. forget about yeah, that. The, the meat tax that the EU will implement on you hmm. doesn't exist, etc. That, you know, it gets people angry, emotional. Yeah. Even if it is completely not based in any kind of fact or anything. And, you know, it's it's the kind of political campaigning that's been around for decades. So it's nothing new. Um, it's just a little bit more maybe sophisticated in how it gets into people's eye frame. But. Yeah. So we are watching out for 2040 for next year. We oh, mentioned yes. that already, no? Where I thought what, what was interesting, what happened is that uh, Hoekstra, who replaced Timmermans, no, who uh, who um, basically, as a prize to be endorsed, committed to uh, looking at ninety percent, if I remember correctly, right? That's right. Which was already an interesting precursor, I think, um, how it how it happened. Um, 
yeah, but uh, apart from that, uh, not too much anymore, right? I mean, that's your industry act I want to follow. And then, ah, yeah, that's true, Sam. Uh, I'm also waiting patiently for these two reports of the Italian gentleman. You know, there's the letter and the Monty. That that Italian gentleman. on the internal market yeah. and on competitiveness in general, which mm-hmm. I think, well, it's non-legislative things, but they could surely be interesting, I say. I mean, I yeah, if, if a, a real explicit link between competitiveness and going green is really made, especially this year in election year, we're laughing because suddenly it's, well, the entire economy is now reliant on the energy transition going well, you know, this is maybe what Mr. Monty is going to come up with in his, in his report. Maybe um, that would, I think have a lot of positive effect on the way that policy is made because suddenly it's suddenly no longer ideology at all. Climate yeah. change, climate action. It's literally about making people money and making sure they can pay their bills. Yeah. You know, I think as soon as that argument is made and won, all of this stuff starts falling into place quite easily. You know, all of the legislation is suddenly, oh, well, it's not ambitious enough. We need to, you know, make it better because we're not going to be able to get as much renewable energy as we need to be competitive. Uh, Um, So. Yeah. And that got a little bit lost, not as kind of argument, which was in a way the, the original base of the green deal. Right. Um, But in the, in the end, the fact that this green deal indeed was, turned out to be quite a solid response to all the crisis this commission had to deal with is a bit, no, got a bit under the radar again. That's true. Yeah. Should we talk a bit about technology and uh, yeah. what, what we think is going to happen in 2024? I mean, we talked a lot about the politics mm-hmm. um, and especially European politics. I mean, one of the um, uh, indicators that there's still lots of excitement, I think, around the transition is um, every year the MIT Technology Review, they post their 10 breakthrough technologies for the year. And I just took a look this morning and three out of the 10 are energy technologies. One has already been mentioned, geothermal, um, enhanced geothermal. The other one is uh, solar, uh, you know, the small yeah. efficient solar panels. So far, I like it. Uh, and the third one um, is heat pumps. Is so um, no. yeah, heat pumps. So we have three out of 10 energy technologies. Um, and of course, lots of excitement to what extent they will deliver remains to be seen in 2024, but we've seen certainly with solar and, and heat pumps, huge momentum in 2022 and to some extent also in 2023. Um, but maybe we can get into, um, sort of what all of this means, uh, for the full range of technologies, um, that would play a key role. Um, I mean, we, we also looked at. EV sales, um, I think, over the last few months in a lot of uh, newspaper coverage. Um, so perhaps we can disentangle that a little bit in the next few minutes. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, yeah. Well, let's begin with you, yeah. What sort of technologies then? You mentioned uh, a few there from MIT. What are the technologies that you're most closely following uh, in 2024? I mean, clearly, renewables deployment um, is is one indicator. You know, how much wind and solar capacity are we adding? And for me, the interesting question is um, not so much whether we're going to add more. We're going to add an awful lot more than we added in previous years. But to what extent that deployment will happen in Europe? Um, you know, we know that China is deploying at record um, pace, and they will continue to do so. But will Europe be able to uh, 
speed up because we've seen all these discussions around permitting. Um, you know, the solar industry has complained about low module prices uh, and asking uh, potentially for government support. Um, so there's lots of obstacles, um, it seems, whereas at the same time, um, places like China are deploying um, at, at the, the, the fastest rate ever, I think, in history. So that's one of the interesting questions, I think, for me uh, to follow. To what extent will Europe be actually be able to do what they, it said in the Repower EU, um, EU strategy and, and really speed up deployment and meet those very ambitious goals? And similarly, I think um, for technologies like heat pumps, where we had the backlash in Germany, but we still have um, a lot of momentum um, in a number of member states in Europe, but also in other European countries, not in the European Union, like the UK, uh, we see some momentum. There's lots of investment happening. Uh, what will happen with electric vehicles? I think that's one to watch. Um, I mean, some of the coverage, uh, I think, has been somewhat misleading, sort of saying uh, there's been a reverse and um, you know, there's less cars being sold that are electric. That isn't true in, in, in absolute numbers. I think we still sold more electric vehicles uh, in 2023 than in 2022. But it is right that I think the share of electric vehicles hasn't risen quite as much as in previous years. So is that a trend? You know, where will that go? I think that's an interesting question um, to, to ask and to watch closely in 2024. Also, with lots of new models coming onto market that are more affordable. And you know, companies like um, BYD from China, who just overtook Tesla in the last quarter, I think, in terms of sales um, of electric vehicles globally, um, coming uh, to Europe um, perhaps more aggressively than in the past. I think those are all, I think, really interesting areas to observe and to watch. And then finally, I think the, the big topic is grids, because we see already in countries like the Netherlands, for example, that the grid is becoming the bottleneck of many of these things, both in terms of connecting new generation, but also connecting new loads. Um, you know, where will that end up? Um, and I'd be interested in, in also in Michaela's take on the infrastructure questions. We, we had just had the gas package um, being put through um, a quite difficult process at European level. What would happen with gas infrastructure, which is, is linked directly um, to the question of electrical grids too? I'm surprised the MIT lists geothermal. Like if it, I mean, I, I like it, but I'm surprised because it won't drop from the sky, right? It's a technology that needs a lot of uh, framing and de-risking for drilling. What is the expectation there? I like geothermal. I mean, it would be good. I really like geothermal. I, I, I was, uh, one I'm of these... also a big fan of geothermal, but it's nowhere, right? Well, I was, I was one of these people who were of the sort of viewpoint that, oh, you can only have it in places where, you know, lava comes out of the ground, like Iceland or, you know, very deep places like Kenya. And then we did a bit of coverage on it last year with one of, one of the other podcasts. And um, one of the Danish MEPs wants the European Commission to come out with a geothermal strategy, you know, actually find yeah. out where in Europe you can do this. Um, I don't know. It was, it was quite revealing to see that um, by using even technology that's been developed by the fossil fuel industry to to dig as deeply as possible, um, you can deploy it not everywhere, but in a hell of a lot of places. So I don't know. It's just kind of exciting to see maybe that this kind of technology that hasn't had a lot of attention could maybe. Uh, oh, I think I think it's graining traction not maybe necessarily as a as an electricity generator but uh for things like decarbonizing heating networks uh and as a lot of people as a lot more cities and urban areas are looking to uh, maybe install district heating 
um, and finding low carbon sources of heat to help power that, whether that's from uh, waste heat from industry uh, and data centers, but also um, new technologies that that isn't reliant on or that aren't reliant on on fossil yeah. fuels. And I think that's where the attraction of geothermal comes in. Uh, you can get, you don't have to go, you don't have to have a, a massively warm temperature coming up, so you don't have to go that deep. Uh, in order for it to at least contribute to a heating network, and then it can be boosted using heat pumps and, and other other sort of technologies, and combining them and coupling those, um, I think that's where geothermal is getting quite a lot of interest. But that would be great, twenty twenty four, the year of geothermal. I could live with it, and I also think hmm. it's a it will be at least for the EU level also a little bit of check in on CCS technologies. Huh? Uh, I think it. Uh, mm-hmm. It has also not been fully on. I mean, this has this is coming back, right? I mean, uh, a little bit in a policy discourse. I think. I mean, yeah. we we have this carbon management Absolutely. strategy coming out, so I think that will also be be interesting to follow. I think that's reliant a little bit. I don't know. It might be a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, but that's reliant on the economy, the economies behind it, and the markets behind. Uh, CCS and carbon capture and having a carbon price that's effective um, to really um, make carbon capture a, 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 an attractive investment uh, and a, an attractive policy uh, a choice. So I, I do wonder, but that also that maybe only happens once the policies are in place and the and the and the projects are actually functioning. So uh, yeah, it might be a chicken and egg scenario. I think for that one, if we can get the both the technologies up and running, but also the economies behind it, um, and, and the, the markets behind it to function in, in an effective way, then that might rapid uh, speed up deployment uh, a bit more rapidly. I mean, on that point, Dave, I think that's one of the things I'm kind of looking forward to looking at in 2024. I mean, this personal obsession of mine of carbon carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM. That is linked to carbon. CBAM is your personal obsession. Well, it seems <laughs> to have emerged as one for some reason. It wasn't a, it wasn't an active choice, but I do find myself <laughs> thinking about it sometimes. But, um, but you know, what will happen in twenty twenty four? The EU is up and running, kind of now. But what other countries will adopt it? You know, Canada is thinking about it. The UK has said it's going to do it. It's even thinking about being a bit more ambitious by covering more things. Maybe um, Australia, Japan, South Korea. Um, maybe the United States as well seems to be like a bipartisan issue there almost. So I think that will be quite interesting to see whether or not that nexus between trade and climate and carbon pricing comes together a little bit more, and that it isn't just the United, you know, the European Union saying you got to pay us a load of money to import stuff. It's going to be more of a global effort to actually, you know, this climate club that that keeps being talked about whether or not that will emerge in 2024, because it will have an impact on things like you said, Dave, you know, carbon pricing takes off in these countries. You do start seeing the trickle down into things like maybe CCS becoming a bit more viable, you know, renewable energy being uptaken more because it's simply less expensive or, you know, so I think that will be relatively interesting. Absolutely. Uh, Before we go, uh, one thing we ask all of our guests, and Sam, given that you're our guest on this podcast this week, um, can you uh, look into your crystal ball uh, and s- provide some sort of insight into the next uh, 10 to 20 years? What does the energy transi- transition look like in 10 to 20 years' time? 10 to 20 years, good me. Um, well, I think, well, we mentioned the 2040 target for the EU. That's 
quite closer than I realized. Now I'm doing the maths in my head. Um, but this kind of implementation idea, whether or not it all worked or not. Again, I like to be an optimist and think that we are on the right track and we'll be looking back in 10, 20 years thinking, oh, we should have done a bit more in the 2020s and you know, we could have avoided a little bit more of the unfortunate sort of climate um, impacts that there will be. But I also think that the, the point that we sort of made earlier is that um, climate will not be an ideology by any extent. And that's going to be less than 10 years. That's going to be within the next 10 years, I think, where you will have a lot of places, countries or cities or regions focusing more on things like clean air, which are implicitly, of course, linked to every aspect of the energy transition. That will be a major, you know, it's been a thing in Poland where a lot of climate action there has been pushed by uh, activists saying, look, our children are smoking a pack of cigarettes a day because of fossil fuels. I think in parts of the world where we see not a lot of um, climate action at the moment, that kind of thinking will become a lot more prevalent. So as we get into the next decade, we'll all be going towards the same gener- you know, same destination, maybe under different motives. And that will be interesting to look back on, I think, to see how we got to the same point. Mm. Um, but it's otherwise, absolutely. I can't predict anything because I would be a richer man if I could, I think. But, um, <laughs> Usual another thing, for another, another pet project or, or you know interest of mine when you're saying about technology i would really mm. love fusion technology to become an actual okay thing. um again that's the deep optimist in me because i think when you read about developments in fusion technology it's incremental steps forward and it's it's going to be very difficult for it to have a meaningful impact on the energy transition but wouldn't it be wonderful if it did yeah. i do appreciate that that is um probably not going to be the case <laughs> Maybe not. Not at least not before 2050 anyway. No. <laughs> Maybe long term. Uh, that's all we have time for today. My thanks go to Sam, Michaela and Jan for joining us and our producer Kira pulling the strings uh, in the background. Before we go, I just want to let you know about Foresight's new website and app. Please do go check those out and delve into our in-depth content on the energy transition, including the Policy Dispatch podcast and our new daily format, The Jolt, where you'll hear more from Sam. Go to www.foresightmedia.com. If you have any other questions for the podcast, please do join the conversation on the app or on LinkedIn. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.